Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to talk with you today and learn from you. So I want to jump right in. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure, well, thanks for having me, first of all. I'm Sarah Mills. I am. Uh, I split my appointment here at the uni university. Um, I'm a research scientist at Graham Sustainability Institute, and I uh, lead our energy programs here. But I also do, um, a, am a lecturer, and so teach classes in the School for Environment and Sustainability. And in what areas does your research focus? So whether it's teaching or in research, um, I think uh, I do a little bit of everything, but I think the heart of what I do is really understanding renewable energy, the, the localized impacts of renewable energy. And when I say impacts, I mean both positive and negative. Um, and in, particularly, in particular, I look at the rural communities um, that are often the hosts for large-scale wind and solar projects. Some of my work is also understanding the patterns that we see in responses to renewable energy proposals. So why do some communities say, yes, we want a wind project, and actually once this one gets built, we want even more, and other communities say, no, thank you, or one is enough for us. And then a small amount of my work is to understand the kind of interaction between state and local policies and how that either facilitates renewable energy development or hinders, often unintentionally, renewable energy development. Um, again, with kind of the lens of how do rural communities that would host this infrastructure see those policies. And how do you conduct that research that considers how energy resources impact rural communities? There's not one answer, in part because I am really driven by answering the questions that communities themselves are asking. So I'm going to start by saying how I figure out what impacts are important. And a lot of that is to go to rural communities where wind and solar projects are being proposed or where they're actively discussing projects and just listen to the questions that I get. I have a grant from the State Energy Office, which is within EGLE, that's the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, to allow me to go to communities and talk about the pros and cons. And so I draw upon kind of the research that already exists, but regularly get questions from communities where no researchers have started to look. Um, so sometimes one of the questions is like, how many jobs actually can we expect if we allow for this solar farm to happen. And so in that situation, this takes like calling, like looking at the solar farms that are already built in the state to understand how many employees they have in that host community, not the solar industry in general. There's a bunch of jobs in construction and in the kind of engineering side, but keeping that solar plant operational, um, there's fewer jobs. And so 
that's done by kind of case study and triangulation um, across a couple of different projects. In my work on understanding, uh, one of the, the things that is being asked right now is particularly when we're thinking about solar farms um, in rural communities, the, the solar farms, the kind of average footprint of a project that's coming is one and a half to two square miles. So 12, you know, uh, 1200 acres is two square miles. So communities are wondering what impact would taking, you know, 1200 acres out of corn or soybean production, what does that, what impact does that have on our agricultural economy in this area? So uh, I have a grant right now to research that. And to do that, we are doing interviews with local officials because while yes, you would be planting less corn and soybeans if you have a solar farm, you're also getting more money um, from the solar developer, they're paying more taxes. So we're trying to understand what is that tax difference? I'm talking to the people who have solar panels, uh, interviewing people with solar panels on their property to understand what they're doing with the revenue that they receive from having those solar panels on their property. Are they reinvesting it in their farm? My previous research on wind energy finds that that's what they do. Um, so they could be doing this with solar revenue. Um, or it could be that they're seeing, you know, there's not much to farm anymore um, with the solar panels. So they might be taking that money and retiring to Florida or Arizona. And that's important. And this is a question that nobody's answered yet. Nobody knows how many of the farmers who have solar panels on their property are still farmers or who, which farmers are just seeing this as a, as a retirement strategy. So it's, it's very much a mix of case studies, interviews. I do surveys of, of neighbors in the area to understand kind of their perceptions of wind and solar projects too. So I think that that's really fascinating, but also the way that you talk with individuals, um, to see how they are using it or what they think or how people feel about it. Um, I think, you know, that's, it's really great engagement work and, you know, so, so fascinating to hear the different ways that you try and engage not only interests, but just, you know, feelings and opinions and, um, you know, where this, where this all stands. And so I want to ask you, why, why do you find that it's important to examine the impact of renewable energy on rural communities specifically? The reason that I look in rural communities is because those are the places that have the land required to host wind and solar projects. So while when you look at the amount of land required for energy technology, electricity generation, um, often you should be thinking about kind of the whole life cycle. So we've got, you know, coal mining doesn't necessarily happen in the same place where there's a coal fire power plant. The kind of energy generation location is tends to be separate from the kind of mining activity. For wind and solar, it's the same place. <laughs> you are effectively, you know, like mining the wind and mining the sun. And that for that, just that generation piece, it, it takes more land for um, the same amount of energy of solar or wind than it does for a coal fire power plant. Um, getting a little bit 
like into the weeds, even if you don't know energy, I don't want to scare people off, <laughs> but for like a thousand megawatt coal or natural gas plant, it takes about a hundred acres of land to get that same capacity, that same thousand megawatts for solar, if it takes about five to 7,000 acres, so 50 times as much land. If you're talking about wind energy, the footprint of the wind turbine itself doesn't take up very much land. It collectively to get a thousand megawatts, it takes about 500 acres. So about five times as much as kind of coal or natural gas, but you can't line wind turbines up right next to each other. So you, they have to have, they need, you know, the wind needs time to recuperate from one wind turbine to the next. And so oftentimes this, you know, that thousand megawatts would be spread over a hundred thousand acres. What that means is that like the places that have that amount of land are rural communities. Um, you can't close the coal fire power plant and replace that same amount of electric, you know, this, get the same amount of power from wind or solar in that very same location. Very interesting. Continuing this focus on, you talking about your focus on rural communities, what are some of the challenges that these communities face when it comes to energy development? I think that the primary challenge is that they're just not prepared for it. So in many situations, like, first of all, I think a lot of people who even work within this space, within the renewable energy space, have been pleasantly surprised with how quickly the costs have come down. And so places where, um, or the tech, where the technology has changed. So solar, the price of solar panels has like, I don't know the exact figure, but it has precipitously declined over the last decade, um, making it economically viable in a lot more places. For wind, um, the price hasn't changed all that much. It's just the wind turbine technology makes it possible, cost-effective for um, places with even lower wind speeds that 10 years ago weren't considered windy enough for wind development to now be economically viable. So those changes have happened pretty rapidly. And the rural communities that would be the hosts haven't really considered that like they are a viable they, they could be a viable community for this. So what it means is that they are often reacting to developers who show up knocking at their door saying, we want to host a hundred turbine wind farm in your community, or we think you have the right characteristics for a 2000 acre solar farm. And communities are kind of caught off guard <laughs> um, rather than proactively thinking about where and how this fits. They're suddenly like scrambling to say like, oh, we need to figure out like, do we want this or not? And we've got landowners who are interested. A wind or solar farm can't be developed unless they have landowners who are willing to, to lease their land for it. So some landowners who want to see this, but sometimes their neighbors are saying, whoa, we didn't expect that this was coming. And, um, and they're kind of under, you know, they're under a tight timeline to make a decision. And so that I think is the real challenge is that it's just caught everybody off guard. 
I want to ask you about a recent NPR article that you were featured in. And the article focused on misinformation and renewable energy projects across the US. I thought that this was really an interesting way to look at this topic. And so since I have the opportunity to speak with you today, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how misinformation plays a role in renewable energy conversations. Well, like I was just saying before, when communities are reacting to projects, they, you know, there's some people that are in support and others that are concerned. This is a change in their community. Um, and so they typically, because local governments, in the state of Michigan, it's local governments. In other states, it varies, whether it's the state government or kind of the county or, or other kind of local government. Um, it's those local governments that have the say over kind of what the rules are. And so community members need to make cases of why a wind or solar project should be allowed, why this is a good place for wind or solar. And sometimes my, not just my hunch, there's other research to say like, ultimately people are thinking about like, does this fit with my own um, sense of what this place is about? <laughs> um, people who are in a community for aesthetic purposes, you know, wind, wind turbines are 500, 600 feet tall now. That changes that landscape a little bit. Um, solar farms at the scale of a couple square miles, even though they're shorter, like it still changes that aesthetic. And so people, you know, really their reaction is, probably an aesthetic one, but oftentimes like try to find any arguments that they can um, to bolster their case that this is a good or a bad thing for their community. And so there's lots of misinformation swirling. I mean, everybody says, right, like, don't believe everything you can you find on the internet. Um, but there's a whole bunch of information out on the internet um, about either anecdotes or um, just straight up like falsehoods <laughs> um, about the impacts that wind or solar can have. And people bring those to local government discussions about these projects. And first of all, like if it's only written in an academic journal, like people don't have necessarily have access to it. Like you have to have subscriptions to those things. So it's, it's difficult to, you know, for them to go to the literature and figure out like, what are the actual impacts? What is true and what is not? When you were on Michigan Minds before, I think it was the end of 2020. I recall you uh, saying something that always stuck with me is that like, sometimes people don't want to think about that there are positive and negative aspects of all energy sources. And I always thought that that was really interesting. Like each community might have something that works better, but that doesn't mean it's the best for all other communities and that there's always a balance. Um, and so I've just, I, I've always thought of that now since I talked to you before. And so just that, that seems to play into that kind of misinformation in this area too, and that there's not always just one clear answer, but a lot of research and a lot of discussions that need to be had. Well, and I would say, First of all, I'm glad that that was the, that's what I often end <laughs> my like lectures to my students with, like remembering that there, you know, every energy source has impacts. That's really important. Um, and, you know, at the community level, I encourage communities to acknowledge that and to figure out kind of which, 
which are the impacts that fit with what their community is about and where, where it gets tricky, right, is where when you have people in your community that live there for different reasons. And so like what you want to see, what impacts seem awful to you may not be the same as your neighbors. But I also think that that gets into how we think about combating misinformation in, in helping. I mean, there's, I think that there's certainly a role that, that science, that scientists can play in these local conversations in being experts about kind of what are the reasonable impacts um, or the realistic impacts, what is fact from fiction, but without having a scientist on call in all these communities, the litmus test that I typically give to, uh, to the advice that I give to local officials is, are you hearing only the positives? Or are you hearing only the negatives about whatever, you know, technology it is that you're discussing? Because the reality is like, there, it, there are shades of gray. There are always drawbacks and there are always positives too. Um, and so, and localized positives. It's not just global positives. I don't like, it's not, you know, there are local benefits to, we know that there are global benefits to renewable energy, to wind and solar. The local benefits are really, are largely economic benefits. And so if people aren't talking about that or saying like, this is never gonna be good, like there's, that's that's the kind of sniff test to say, mm, maybe it's, maybe there is not, this is not all uh, true. How, can, can you just describe a little bit how important community engagement is in the process of creating renewable energy resources, like what you've been talking about with wind and solar plants? Uh, I think it's crucial. I think what I've been, oh, most of the research, not just mine, but most of the research on public acceptance of renewable energy talks about how um, the importance of procedural justice. So that is like the community feeling like they had a say in the process, that they were given discretion. There's also some amount of um, distributional justice, a fair share of the benefits and impact and negative impacts and kind of how that spread across the community. Um, community engagement, I think what's what's harder is whose responsibility is community engagement. Like that's what nobody is quite sure about. When um, a lot of that time it's put on the developer, like the wind farm or solar farm developer, and there's certainly a role that they play in, you know, in making sure that everybody is included in the, pro in the discussion. A lot of that ultimately like rests with the local government too, um, because it, the, policies around setting rules for land use where wind and wind turbines and solar panels are allowed are supposed to follow like there's a there's a pro process that each state and um, community sets forth about how to have those discussions but again when people are re reacting and everything is those timelines are shortened it's hard to like do authentic community engagement and make sure that all voices are being heard. And so I'm have increasingly been, this is totally the planner in me. Like my, my PhD is in urban planning. And so I would say like, let's plan and not react. <laughs> um, but I think that there's a role for us 
for us generally as a society to start to engage about where energy infrastructure will be in the future. Um, there's a lot of things, a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built if we're to decarbonize. Now, I, I think a lot about wind and solar, obviously, but if you're thinking about decarbonizing transportation, right? Like we need to think about um, both EV manufacturing and kind of where charging facilities would be, um, kind of the also kind of expanding transit, making our cities so that you don't actually have to rely upon an individual vehicle. So like there's there's lots of land use discussions around that that we should we need to start having now. And a lot of it would be better, I think, if we're thinking about it ahead of time rather than only reacting. Are there any common misconceptions about renewal, rural renewable energy that you, you want to discuss uh, in, a, in a little bit more detail? Sure. So, I mean, there's always kind of one-off misconceptions that I have no idea where they come from. I think in terms of common ones, on the negative side, there's a lot, of, there's sometimes skepticism about whether it's sunny enough in the state of Michigan for solar energy. Or um, oftentimes people will look at old wind maps that sometimes are marked about where wind resources are marginal. And again, with older technology, there were fewer places where wind was economically viable. And so they'll just say like, why? Like, it is not windy or sunny enough here. Why are people showing up? Like, I've heard like, this must be a boondoggle. Like, um, my response is that like the economics have changed, the technology has changed and a developer isn't gonna be showing up and entering into leases with landowners if it's not economically viable. On the other side, I'm, I'm, I get myself in trouble all the time because again, just like the sky is not always falling on the bad side of renewable energy, um, I think we shouldn't sugarcoat kind of how we're thinking about renewables either. So there are a lot of renewable energy jobs. But as I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of those jobs are in construction and in kind of the, the offices associated with um, renewable energy facilities. They're not necessarily in the host communities. And so it, you know, for a community that's hosting a wind and solar farm, wind or solar farm, um, thinking about how many jobs would actually transpire in that place and also whether they have people there that are, that are, um, have the appropriate skills to take those jobs. Not every community college in a windy place has a wind energy technician training program, right? So it might be a local job, but it might not be held by a local. Um, and so I think that those are, both of those things are important to kind of sort out um, or acknowledge. I think that that is a really great note to wrap up on. But before we do, I wanted to ask if you have any other information or any topics that you want to share with us before, before we end the podcast. My typical closing words, so I will say this again, are that every energy source has localized impacts and we need to think through those. 
The other maybe fun fact or thing that I want to keep in mind is it in part because my reference is the state of Michigan. So much of my work is working with rural communities in Michigan. And uh, I'm super proud of, or super excited about the Ludington pump storage facility that's on the west side of the state. It is a gigantic battery <laughs> that really allows us to um, put a whole bunch more renewables onto the grid and store excess power when you know the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. And I think that that is one of our kind of super strengths that we're going to have as we think about decarbonizing um, that, that we have that facility available. This has been absolutely wonderful, Dr. Mills. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me today and share all this information with me and our audience. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.